The classroom was not his when he first arrived. It was the domain of substitute teachers for the first few weeks until he walked into the room. I slid into my seat and stifled a groan. There was always the silent exasperation that came with new teachers, the need to learn their likes and dislikes, their mannerisms, and what one had to do for extra credit. My back pushed into the plastic cradle of the chair. The clock arms twitched in micro-movement. I winced. The teacher's desk was at an angle that faced our neat rows of desks. A cream-colored built-in cupboard behind the desk stood empty and anonymous, but contained the essence of privacy, space that the teacher would fill with teacherly possessions. Out the window, across the narrow courtyard, was my homeroom teacher's classroom. Mr. Connell was someone I labeled a spaz, whose wackiness and unpredictability is what kept our attention during class. I wrinkled my nose at the assignments Mr. Connell conjured up, but I avidly participated, figuring I'd trust his method of teaching to get me an A, or at the very least, a B. In front of us, though, was the new guy who'd been hired to take the reins and lead us, the advanced 8th grade English class. I could already imagine the assignments, mundane essays about summer vacation or what we might do with a million dollars won in the California State Lottery. Pin-drawn spirals multiplied on my notebook covers, scribbles in my hardcover textbooks, the middle section pages cluttered with my tiny handwriting, messages for the student who would open it next. This teacher wore slacks and a collared shirt and tie with a dark cardigan sweater in place of a blazer. His burgundy loafers with tassels gleamed. Only one of my other male teachers dressed this way, and I was reminded that these kind of clothes didn't occupy a place in my father's closet. While I walked between classrooms at junior high, my father was in a warehouse doing math problems, his pencil scratching graph paper before he cut sheets of metal to form ducts and casings. This work didn't require more than t-shirts, corduroys, or blue jeans, sometimes a denim apron. My mother, on the other hand, worked with and for suited men. She pushed paper, answered phones with the words, data processing, this is D, and took smoke breaks off of Sunset Boulevard where she worked on the seventh floor of a city office building. This teacher started talking to us in a fast and easy fashion, as though we were all old friends and he'd just returned from a weekend jaunt. I watched from my desk, noting his easy demeanor, how he was already joking with Brian, the class jester, and how he made eye contact with Veronica, whose attention I craved from the tip of my black boots to the top of my hairsprayed bangs. Mr. Ivers, he introduced himself, his eyes meeting ours resolutely as he spoke. His voice boomed as his thick hand composed on the blackboard. Ivers. English. Chalk dust scattered away from him like an aura. I coolly looked down at my wood-top desk when he tuned his attention to us, asked questions about the school, how we were doing this fine afternoon. He offered information about himself, smiling, knocking on desks with his fist, inhaling loudly. I wondered whether I wanted to look up again and watch what was suddenly sounding like fun, kids letting go of their fragile teenage seriousness, the laughter catching, the banter baiting. I decided to display a disinterest I was learning to perfect. This air of disinterest took the place of thinking about school, or how life with my parents felt raw, wounded. My preferred setting was the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which felt wild and thick with the comings and goings of high school dropouts turned punks, their colored hair stiffened with spray, hands outstretched awaiting change. Placing myself just outside their unpredictable orbits, I aligned myself with them 
than in any group that was already drifting against or outside of the margins. This way, I would not be central to anything, but could simply observe, absorb, absorb,